I'm doing fine. Yes, it's the first day of October, the 10th day of the month, and here we go. We are well into fall. It's nice and cool. The leaves are turning. And uh, this article, I, I, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, discussing this article on Beijing's American Hustle. Okay, and I will admit that during that whole intro, my mic was muted. Um, oh, okay. Say so, it again. So, hello, and <laughs> welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is October 1st, Friday, October 1st, first day of a new month, and we will be discussing an article from Foreign Affairs by a former Trump-era National Security Council member, Matt Pottinger, entitled Beijing's American Hustle. Okay, I got the intro out. I can't believe I was muted for the whole entire intro, but... Um, we're in business now, right? Hey, yes. First day of fall. Here we go. And uh, it's uh, we've uh, had other articles uh, on foreign affairs in foreign affairs. Uh, I like foreign affairs because it is uh, experts. It's not just people who have just an idea, who have very little background or uh, an alternative background or an alternate view. These are people who've studied it, and these are people who've been there. Uh, and they are speaking from knowledge. And so I'm I'm looking forward to reading this this article on uh, uh, Beijing's American Hustle, how Chinese grand strategy exploits U.S. power. And so, uh, uh, and it's in the uh, September October 2021 uh, edition of the Foreign Affairs. Uh, uh, well, it's not really a journal. What is it? Foreign. It's a magazine. It's a magazine. Yeah. But it's a very good one. These are great articles, and that's why we cover them. Yes, and uh, Matt Pottinger is a senior advisor at the Marathon Initiative and was Deputy U.S. National Security Advisor from 2019 to 2021. So he is, you know, a Republican foreign policy guy. And I think we'll see that here. Um, in the article, he's much more realist, I think, um, realism in terms of nation states are actors and there's this drive to maintain a balance of power in the world and we should maximize our ability to uh, maximize our ability to ensure our balance of power is greater than others that's sort of how realism works and i think we'll sort of get that in these pages um but it's different than the one we read two episodes ago with ben rhodes who was an Obama-era national security advisor. Now, I think that the closer you are to, because Ben Rhodes has, of course, removed a bit from, you know, five years plus from his work on the National Security Council. Uh, Matt Pottinger was on the National Security Council as early as this year. And so I think that they have different ideas. Now, what is the Marathon Initiative? Do you think that's a decent thing to look into before we start? Oh, maybe just to look, just to get some background on uh, his his position, and where he's speaking from. It's not a bad idea at all. A marathon initiative uh, to develop the diplomatic, military, and economic strategy of the nation will will yeah. Let's click on that. Okay, maybe it's a think tank. Look at this. America is entering an era of great power competition for which it is not prepared. It's a 501c3 nonprofit research organization funded by private individuals and foundations. Yep. Uh, Marathon does not seek or accept funding uh, from corporations 
or from foreign sources. And there's Matt Pottinger, senior advisor. Yep. So we know that he is this marathon initiative guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that he was a Trump era national security deputy national security advisor. So, yep. So uh, let's get into the article. Shall we get started? Sure. Beijing's American Hustle, How Chinese Grand Strategy Exploits U.S. Power by Matt Pottinger. Although many Americans were slow to realize it, Beijing's enmity for Washington began long before President Trump selection in 2016. Even prior to the Chinese President Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2012, ever since taking power in 1949, the ruling Chinese Communist Party, CCP, has cast the United States as an antagonist. But three decades ago, at the end of the Cold War, Chinese leaders elevated the United States from just one among many antagonists to their country's primary external adversary and began quietly revising Chinese grand strategy, embarking on a quest for regional and then global dominance. The United States and other free societies have belatedly woken up to this contest, and a rare spirit of bipartisanship has emerged on Capitol Hill. But even this new consensus has failed to adequately appreciate one of the threatening elements of Chinese strategy, the way it exploits vital aspects of American and other free societies and weaponizes them in the service of Chinese ambitions. Important U.S. institutions, especially in finance and technology, cling to self-destructive habits acquired through decades of engagement an approach to China that led Washington to prioritize economic cooperation and trade above all else. If U.S. policymakers and legislatures find the will, however, there is a way to pull Wall Street and Silicon Valley back on side, convert the United States' vulnerabilities into strengths, and mitigate the harmful effects of Beijing's political warfare. That must begin with bolder steps to stem the flow of U.S. capital into China, so-called military-civil fusion enterprises, and to frustrate Beijing's aspiration for leadership in, and even monopoly control of, high-tech industries, starting with the semiconductor manufacturing. The United States must also do more to expose and confront Beijing's information warfare, which spews disinformation and sows division by exploiting U.S. social media platforms, platforms that are themselves banned inside China's own borders. And Washington should return the favor by making it easier for the Chinese people to access authentic news from outside China's so-called Great Firewall. Some have argued that because the CCP's ideology holds little appeal abroad, it poses an insignificant threat to U.S. interests. Yet, that ideology hardly appeals to the Chinese people either. And that hasn't prevented the party from dominating the nation of 1.4 billion people. The problem is not the allure of Leninist totalitarianism, but the fact that Leninist totalitarianism, as practiced by the well-resourced and determined rulers of Beijing, has tremendous coercive power. Accordingly, U.S. leaders should not ignore the ideological dimension of this contest. They should emphasize it. American values, liberty, independence, faith, tolerance, human dignity, and democracy— are not just what the United States fights for, they are also among the most potent weapons in the country's arsenal because they contrast so starkly with the CCP's hollow vision of one-party rule at home and Chinese domination abroad. 
Washington should embrace those strengths and forcefully remind American institutions that although placating China might help their balance sheets in the short term, their long-term survival depends on the free markets and legal rights that only U.S. leadership can secure. In the past decades, the United States' failure to reckon with the ways that American society and businesses were being weaponized to serve the CCP's long-term agenda might have been chalked up to naivete or Pollyanna-ish optimism. Such excuses are no longer plausible. Yet, Beijing continues to run this play, turning American money and institutions to its own ends, making the need for real action from Washington all the greater. Oh, I have you muted. Hold on. What do you think? Uh, very interesting in introduction. And he sets he sets a very interesting stage. And uh, it's hard to argue that. Uh, that when we see what they have done, like you talked about the semiconductors and and uh, everything that they've done in the past, you start putting that into perspective. And I think that's a really good introduction. Yes, I, I, I clued into that immediately. And I did a quick Google search. Mm -hmm. On semiconductor. Because I thought that doesn't sound right. China doesn't make semiconductors. The United States does. That's true. Um, let's take a look, though. Semiconductor firms headquartered in the Asia-Pacific region accounted for most of the balance of capacity. So we design 81%, but I think a lot of them are made in Taiwan at the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Um, so if you look at it in terms of market share by country, um, United States is 47%. Korean have 19%, Japan and EU each accounting for about 10%. So that's what? So China is about 3% of the market. Mm -hmm. That's 2018, 2019. Now they're making an aggressive play in the market. And if they were to attack and take over Taiwan, they would hold a lot of the manufacturing capacity. Um, and I think his argument is if you consider China part of Taiwan, Right now, despite the fact that they're not designing the chips, Taiwan is manufacturing so many of the chips. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, when I heard that, I I I knew they didn't. I didn't. I didn't think they made that many semiconductor chips. But my first thought was, well, it's it's one thing uh, to have manufacturing the chips. It's the other thing. To distribute them, and I'm just wondering if if uh, the supply chain is uh, they have enough of they get enough of a hold within the supply chain uh, to create risks uh, in different aspects of where the semiconductors are are being used. Now you haven't read this and, article, but I have, and that's exactly the argument that he makes. <laughs> yeah, because they 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 can hold. They look. They look. They don't look at at uh, how much control they have of the supply chain and of the uh, uh, semiconductor industry industry. What they do is uh, where can they interject their percentages to increase the risk to the mm -hmm. United States so that they can control. Yeah. If they can control 95% of a rare earth metal mining market, that's essential to the production of high tech semiconductors then they essentially control the market, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. 
and yeah, exactly. Um, right. And they're gonna and they're gonna position themselves uh, such that they have maybe not economic power, but they have political power because they control the risk of the supply chain. Yes. Now, I will say when I read this, I thought this is much more aggressive than previous articles we've read. Would you agree with that? The tone and well, so far, I agree. So far, so far it is. I remember the last one we read, uh, you know, we we're talking about I was talking about, well, what's the solution? What's the answer? You know, but he actually starts with this is how, what we need to do. Mm hmm. And so, uh, well, again, he was an advisor, and uh, so this might lead to uh, some more definitive conclusions rather than uh, raising awareness. Now, I, I believe, David, it doesn't, both are important. It, it's what's important in these articles to raise awareness, to think about it, not necessarily uh, give answers, but raise awareness to think. Uh, but then when you start uh, uh, providing solutions or proposing solutions, uh, that has to be based on on scholarship, mm -hmm. it has to be based on background and, and research and knowledge. And it looks like he's getting ready to uh, bridge that gap. Well, I would say Ben Rhodes said, you know, us versus them. We sort of took the us versus them of the war on terrorism and we sort of applied it to ourselves. And his... His Ben Rhodes was an Obama era guy in this similar position to Matt Pottinger, and we re, we had an article, we had an episode on that two episodes ago. His final thing was our biggest threat is the CCP. It's not terrorism. Our biggest threat is China, and yet his conclusion was we cannot sort of put China as the new them in an us versus them. I think what we need to realize is that us versus them that mentality hasn't been all that beneficial for us. So what we need to do is start, start to say, how can we make ourselves better? How can we heal at home? How can we invest in infrastructure to outcompete China? So it's about us, and we don't worry about them. We just make ourselves the best version of ourselves. He's saying China is the number one threat. They are what we should tailor our international response around. It's us versus them. Well said, David. I think if I, under, if I understood what you were saying, that both are right with just different perspectives. Yes. And you have to listen to both parties. You have to listen to both sides. They both have a point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the next uh, session is the art. Of, go ahead. And uh, Ben Rhodes said that's going to be this chief foreign policy challenge going forward. And I think Matt Pottinger would agree with that. A Trump era guy, Obama era guy, they say, yes, as far as we're concerned, we're foreign policy experts. And the chief challenge going forward for America will be to deal with Chinese, Chinese ascendancy. They can both agree on that, regardless of their party. Now, if one's more adversarial than the other, the devil's in the details. You know what I mean? The thing about an Obama-era official and a Trump-era official is that they're both Americans. They're both within the American security apparatus. They've both come from the same place and have uh, studied at similar universities and have similar ideals. There's more similarity between a conservative and a liberal in America than there are differences. And that's that's one thing that I always like that when you get into the meat and potatoes of scholarship, you realize that's true. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so the next section, the art of political warfare, ready to do that one? Sure. The art of political warfare, the West's sluggishness in realizing that it has been on the receiving end of China's elaborate 
multi-decade hostile strategy has a lot to do with the hubris that, that following the United States triumph in the Cold War, U.S. policymakers assumed that the CCP would find it nearly impossible to resist the tide of liberalization set off by the collapse of the Berlin Wall. According to this line of thought, by helping enrich China, the United States would loosen the party's grip on its ec economy, people, and politics, setting the conditions for a gradual convergence with the pluralistic West. That was, to put it mildly, a miscalculation, and it stemmed in part from the methods the CCC employs to prosecute its grand strategy. With enviable discipline, Beijing has long camouflaged its intentions to challenge the and, and overturn the U.S.-led liberal order. Beijing co-opted Western technologies that Americans assumed would help democratize China and instead used them to surveil and control its people and to target a growing swath of the world's population outside China's borders. The party now systematically cultivates Western corporations and investors that, in turn, pay difference to Chinese policies and even lobby their home capitals in ways that align with the CCP's objectives. Beijing's method, methods are all manifestations of political warfare. The term that the U.S. diplomat George Kennan, the chief architect of the Cold War strategy of containment, used in a 1948 memo to describe the employment of all the means at a nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives. Kennan credited the Soviet Union with the most refined and effective conduct of political warfare. Were he alive today, Kennan would marvel at the ways Beijing has improved on the Kremlin's playbook. Kennan's memo was meant to dis disabuse U.S. Uh, national security officials of a popular attachment to the concept of a basic difference between peace and war. He was hopeful that Americans would shed this handicap and learn to fight in the political realm to forestall a a potential catastrophic military conflict with the Soviets. To a great extent, Washington did exactly that, marshalling partners on every continent to contain Soviet influence. Today, free and open societies are once again coming to terms with the reality of political warfare. This time, however, the campaign is directed by a different kind of communist party, one that possesses not just military power, but also economic power derived from its quasi-marketized uh, version of capitalism and systematic theft of technology. Although there are holdouts, financiers, entertainers, and former officials who benefited from engagement, for example, polls show that the general public in the United States, European countries, and several Asian countries is finally attuned to the malevolent nature of the Chinese regime and its global ambitions. This should come as no surprise, given the way the CCP has conducted itself in recent years, covering up the initial outbreak of COVID-19, attacking Indian troops on the Chinese-Indian border, choking off trade with Australia, crushing the rule of law in Hong Kong, and intensifying a campaign of genocide against Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in China. Wow. <laughs> so he's not pulling any punches. I mean, he is coming no. out swinging. Yeah. Go, uh, go, Matt. And um, <laughs> I mean, 
I think it's fascinating because, you know, he works at the Marathon Initiative, but he was in the Trump administration. And when we read Ben Rhodes' article, I said, I think he's able to say a lot of this stuff, make a lot of these arguments because he's not in the NSA anymore. It's not diplomatic anymore. It's he's got a podcast and he's laying out a position that's trying to garner support for his position, not necessarily trying to garner a reaction by the apparatus of national security. I think the same may be able to be said for individuals like Matt Pottinger. When you're in the position, you have to be much more diplomatic. Now Mm -hmm. that he's at the Marathon Initiative and he's trying to get people to sort of private foundations and um, investors to invest in the 501c3 that is the Marathon Initiative, he needs to have a stand. You can't just sit on a fence and say, give me money. Um, It's like, what do you think we should do? I don't know. We could be aggressive or we could placate them. Give me money. No one's going to give you money. You have to choose one. You know what I mean? Well, the other thing, too, is that they no longer, their agenda no longer is political. Their agenda is more academic. And so they will speak what they believe mm-hmm. uh, is, 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 is valid, uh, valid arguments, strong, valid arguments, and also from experience, from what, what they have seen. Mm-hmm. So when you're there, when you're at the table, you see a lot more than from the outside in. When you look, when you see things from the inside out, you see a lot more of the personalities, of the movements, of the uh, strategies, of what's done and what's not done, what doesn't come to light. You see what doesn't come to light and why people did what they did when you're at the table and from the inside out. And so these people, we need to listen to them because now they're no longer, as you say, hindered by the diplomacy. Uh, they can say what they, they can say, their their thesis then uh, is based on uh, knowledge and experience from what they saw, but also uh, looking forward outside the sphere of their job of of a political diplomat. Mm-hmm. And I think the fascinating thing is, you know, he said there's a few holdouts, financiers and celebrities have gotten a lot of money. I think a lot of times, I think there was backlash from the wrestler John Cena for placating China. I do remember when. Um, there's a Houston Rockets executive that tweeted out his support of the protesters in Hong Kong. And Beijing said, okay, we're pulling all the TV contracts for the NBA. And LeBron got on TV and he said, he needs to, the Houston Rockets guy needs to think about what he's saying. He, you know, he's ruined a lot of things for a lot of people. And it's like, he's ruining a lot of things for a lot of people by supporting democracy. But LeBron, in his eyes, he's like, he doesn't understand how much money this is going to cost us. And it's, And the thing is, LeBron is going to think from LeBron's perspective, but LeBron is not a foreign policy expert. Matt Pottinger is. Ben Rhodes is. So you can get upset with LeBron, but I think that he, LeBron has a more difficult time contextualizing the entire situation than someone like Matt Pottinger or Ben Rhodes does by virtue of having lived a life in foreign service or in diplomacy. And, and so and I think it's important to look at stuff like that. Now, if you look at what he said in this last section, before, like because we haven't really even touched on it, he's giving us a laundry list of Chinese misdeeds. Uh, that's true. But also, back to LeBron, uh, LeBron is just an example. He's not, he, you, we have to be careful, uh, not careful, I just want to point out that LeBron was an example. But He's an example of what many, many people do in the United States and other countries. They fall in line. They go, oh, yeah, uh, looking at the short-term financial impacts, 
if that's their only only uh, uh, criteria, then they are going to fall right into the the uh, strategy of the Chinese CCP. Definitely, and that's what uh, he's saying. That's what that's Matt. What Pot- saying, that's right. what Matt Pottinger is saying. And the thing is, if it directly benefits you, and Beijing has seen. You know, you use political warfare, the art of political warfare, to directly benefit people that'll be beneficial. You know, LeBron is a big voice in America. He's got a lot of followers on social media. And, you know, his coming out against the Houston Rocket executive that spoke in favor of democracy in Hong Kong was a big boon for China. And the thing is, LeBron doesn't care about China or the Chinese Communist Party, but he does care about what they have to offer. And that's political warfare. China didn't point a gun at anyone except for the Hong Kong protesters. But he, they didn't point a gun at the Houston Rockets executive. They didn't point a gun at LeBron. But they got LeBron to go on TV and say, I condemn the statements supporting democracy by the Houston Rockets executive. And that's political warfare, right? Well, they pointed a, uh, an economic gun at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pointed an economic gun at all of them to look, this is what I did. Now look, I can do the same thing to you. So essentially what they did when they pulled the funding they they pointed an economic gun to every single person, and they capitulated. Mm-hmm. Well, LeBron did, but the, but he's just an example. He's not the only one. There's other people doing the same thing. There are holdouts, but uh, there are a lot of people who fall in line because this the the economic power. Uh, again, I think what Matt is saying here is that that these people are human. And uh, one thing that doesn't change over the decades, even from 1948, from Kenyon's article or Kenyon's uh, perspective in 1948, one thing that doesn't change is people. And, and you can still uh, uh, have a carrot of money in front of people and they will go after it. Mm-hmm. So and that's kind of what he's saying. It's like uh, this is a good example. This is a similar example, like on a domestic level. Let's say you live in a town in West Virginia and the town's 50,000 people, and 30,000 of them work in a coal mine. And then 20,000 people are support services for those 30,000. Now, the coal, the price drops, and they're going to have to lay off 15,000 people. They're going to have to cut the workforce in half. Well, a federal, let's say a congressman for that district, has a lot of power on a committee. And they say, why don't we subsidize this mine and ha- have the government buy all their coal at a good price and save 15,000 jobs? Now, that coal is dirty. It pollutes the atmosphere. There's no place in the market to really send it. It's just completely wasteful. It's using other taxpayers' money to help these 15,000 people keep their jobs. Do you think those 15,000 people in that town in West Virginia are not going to love their congressman for doing something inefficient? Of course they will. Um, and that's I think China sees that too. If you offer someone a carrot, they'll gladly eat it. You, know, you don't need to offer them a stick. And that's what I think Pottinger's talking about, about political warfare. Because they're feeding right into the human nature of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, nations nations have personalities just like people, and nations act like people do, like humans. And so he's trying to say, look at them as a rational actor. They've chosen this path, and people are starting to catch on that they're using it to sort of enact some sort of grand strategy. It's not just to win victories, you know? It's to win a, a broader victory. Right. Right. It's, it's not it's not just winning wars. It's winning uh, uh, battles is winning wars. Mm-hmm. They're looking at they're looking at the long term. And actually, uh, uh, we've seen a lot of indications of that uh, in the media that uh, that uh, the so that the uh, 
the Chinese is trying to trying to uh, quench too. In other words, we, we saw examples of this in media where, uh, like, uh, uh, examples where China tries to silence uh, different uh, voices. Uh, they try to silence it, it very uh, dramatically, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's, they still come out. So these, so these, there's brave people that still come out against what China's doing. So people are beginning to see it. Mm-hmm. So shall we continue? Hide and bide no more. Hide and bide no more. Back to the article. Here we go. Those aggressive moves represent merely a new phase of a decades-old strategy. In writing his recent book, The Long Game, U.S. scholar Rush Doshi poured over Chinese leaders' speeches, policy documents, and memoirs to document how Beijing came to set its sights on dismantling American influence around the globe. According to Doshi, who now serves on the National Security Council staff as China director, three events badly rattled the CCP leaders. The 1989 pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square, the lopsided U.S.-led victory over the Iraq dictator Saddam Hussein's forces in early 1991, and the collapse of the Soviet Union that same year. The Tiananmen Square protests reminded Beijing of the American ideological threat. The swift Gulf War victory reminded it of the American military threat. And loss of the shared Soviet adversary reminded it of the American geopolitical threat, writes Doshi. In short order, the United States quickly replaced the Soviet Union as China's primary security concern. That, in turn, led to a new grand strategy, and a 30-year struggle to displace American power was born. China's new grand strategy aimed first to dilute U.S. influence in Asia, then to displace American power more overtly from the region, and ultimately to dominate a global order more suited to Beijing's governance model. That model isn't merely authoritarian, it's neo-totalitarian, according to Kai Sha, who served for 15 years as a professor in the highest temple of Chinese communist ideology, the Central Party School in Beijing. Kai, who now lives in exile in the United States, recently detailed her falling out with the CCP in these pages, and has written elsewhere that the CCP's fundamental interest and its basic mentality of using the United States while remaining hostile to it have not changed over the past 70 years. She did not sire the party's strategy, argues Kai. He merely shifted it to a more overt and aggressive phase. Had observers more carefully pondered the former Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping's precept for China to hide your capabilities, bide your time, they would have realized that Deng's approach was always intended as a traditional and transitional stage, a placeholder until China was strong enough to openly challenge the United States. That moment has now arrived and Beijing is no longer bothering to camouflage its global ambitions. Today, party slogans call for China to take center stage in the world and build a community of common destiny for mankind. This point was displayed vividly in Alaska in March, during the first face-to-face meeting between senior Biden administration officials and their Chinese counterparts. In their opening statements, the Chinese took advantage of the international TV coverage of the meeting to lecture the Americans. I don't think the overwhelming majority of countries in the world would recognize that the universal values advocated by the United States or that the opinion of the United States could represent international public opinion, the senior Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi said as part of a carefully scripted diatribe. Yang juxtaposed United States-style democracy with what he called Chinese-style democracy. The latter, he contended, enjoys the wide support of the Chinese people, while many people in the United States actually have little confidence in the democracy of the United States.
Yang's soliloquy was so arresting that the most consequential implication was easily lost in the majority of press coverage. Beijing was using its time in front of the cameras to openly declare its bid for world leadership. Yang was following instructions issued by Xi at the 19th Party Congress in October 2017, when the Chinese leader called on party cadres to increase their ideological leadership power and discourse power in defense of Beijing's totalitarian brand of socialism. According to the China scholar Matthew Johnson, this process of fighting and winning ideological battles on the global stage was also given a name, The Great Struggle. Wow. Yeah, very interesting. So, yeah, like, and so a lot. When we look at the, when we look at history, when we look at what happened, uh, it does, it does fit a pattern, and he has a very strong argument. Yeah, and when you, I mean, he's a Trump era administration, but I think what he's saying is, when you watch an election happen and somebody loses, and then you refuse to accept it, why are you refusing to accept it? Is it because the person that lost is telling you it was rigged? Or is it because there's a network of bots funded by nations that want to undermine American democracy sort of cheering you on every time you say that it was rigged? I, I think, yes, it's top down, but it's also bottom up. And that bottom up may be um, overt tactics by foreign intelligence agencies to bolster this claim and say, look at Chinese style democracy. When we have an election and she wins with 99% of the vote, Everyone agrees with it. There's not protests in the streets. There's not stop the steal rallies. Here in America, you guys have an election, and one guy obviously wins, but you, the people that the guy lost, they don't think it's legitimate. So how is that good? And on its face, prima facie, there's, a, there's an argument there, right? There is. It's a, it's a very good argument to support uh, a Chinese-style democracy. Uh, versus the United States style democracy, and uh, and that and also they're using that uh, not only for the Chinese nation but also around the world mm -hmm. their geopolitical influence, and so yeah uh, they again when you start looking at everything they're doing and everything we're doing, uh, his points are well taken. We're falling right into the the plan of the Chinese uh, strategy of world dominance. And their dominance is, is not a democracy, it's a totalitarianism. Now, here's my question, though. If you ask someone in rural Arkansas, rural Oklahoma, like, do you think we should have Chinese-style democracy? They'd say, no, the U.S. is the best country in the world. Then will you say, do you think the election was legitimate? They may say, no, Biden stole it. So that's a, right. Chin that's a Chinese talking point. So... The people I think who, right. who, who think they're most American may be the most coerced by foreign intelligence. That's right. By the media, or not media, but by the by information uh, surge mm -hmm. uh, the, with China, Chinese as a source. Um, exactly right. But this is fascinating. And when I read stuff like this, I always try to take a leveled, measured because you say, you know, we're America, we're democracy, they're China, they're totalitarian. But if you ask someone in in Shanghai, a Chinese citizen, and you ask them, especially on the record, they would say, yeah, our system's better. You know, and just like we think that, you know, American ideals and values are superior to Chinese ideals and values. There's 1.4 billion people in China that would disagree with you. 
<laughs> so uh, That's right. you do have to take it with a grain of salt because here in America, you know, the majority, well, the majority doesn't always rule. The majority didn't rule in 2000. The majority didn't rule in 2016. But the majority often rules here in our democracy. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, I mean, it's fascinating that now, I mean, this is a complete tangent, but we have a court with six conservative justices and three liberal justices. And since 2000, um, only one election has a Republican won the popular vote. Mm-hmm. Since 1990, since 1988. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. But well, I remember, I remember a long time ago when I, when I was younger, uh, I uh, knew this lady, this girl, and she lived in, a, she, she grew up in another country and then she came here. She was an American and uh, she, she named the other country and she says it was a dictatorship. I says, oh, wow, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a democracy or what, you weren't free? She says, no, it was a dictatorship, but it was a really good dictatorship because it was a benevolent dictator. And so we had things much better than, than, than other countries around us because even though they were free, they didn't have it as good as we did. And so a lot of the perspective of ideology really based on how much food do you have on the table? Mm-hmm. You know, how much money do you have in your bank account or how, what cars do you drive or, or how much uh, your lifestyle, how comfortable are you? And if you're convinced that the, the government is giving you comfort and giving you your needs, then a lot of times people don't care what the, uh, what the what the ideology is? It's true. I think that there's a passage in Dickens. I I haven't read Dickens in a while, but I think it's Tale of Two Cities, which is about the French Revolution, and it basically says revolutions don't start in the mind. Revolutions aren't about ideas. Revolutions start in the stomach. Um, it doesn't matter how compelling your ideology is. If you tell people that their stomachs will be full when they're empty, they'll join your cause. I think that's a mm-hmm. very, very compelling thing from, you know, 200 and some odd years ago. It's still true today. <laughs> it's, still, it's still true today. Some, something, and the things about humans don't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't, people have changed. Technology changes, things, times change, countries change, power changes, but uh, people don't change. Yeah. And uh, I think it's fascinating. Um, I watched this YouTube channel and this guy talks about, uh, philosophy. And he says, yeah, don't read the news, read history. If you want to know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, because good point. history will allow you to contextualize things that are happening now within the frame of things that have already happened, because things that happen have already happened and have been documented are awfully similar to things that are happening now. And that's why people say, you know, history repeats itself. So he's like, are you going to learn something from a news article or would you learn more about reading about the beginning, middle, and end of a conflict that's just like the conflict we're in right now? Exactly. Like, exactly. Where, where will you draw more uh, value from? And I think, like, he's got a point. Don't read the news, read history. But shall we get back to the article? Yes. Well, I, again, I, I agree, David. I think a learned person... Not just a learned person, a, a, a citizen, 
a, a, a responsible citizen of the world needs to be a student of history uh, and uh, the legitimate history. Okay, yeah, you ready to get back to the article? Yeah, and I will just say before we go on, the only reason I discussed the presidential popular vote um, and then the composition of the Supreme Court is that it's not really a majority rule system. So that's a good talking point for our Chinese diplomat. It's like, yeah, well, you know, the person that lost the election got to be president um, for eight years when they shouldn't have been. You know, because they got fewer votes. And so you call that democracy here in China. She wins the election. He gets the most votes. He gets to be president. We don't let the other guy be president when she wins the election. That's what you guys do. So it's just it's an easy talking point. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and when you have 99 percent of the vote, when it's too good to be true, usually it's too good to be true. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to the article, The Best Defense. Yes. Okay, uh, back to Keenan. Uh, Keenan considers economic statecraft a vital component of political warfare, and the CCP's assimilation of economic weaponry into its grand strategy would not have surprised him. Beijing's economic objectives are couched in a policy called dual circulation, which prioritizes domestic consumption, internal circulation, over dependence on foreign markets, external circulation. A close look, however, shows the Chinese strategy can really be thought of as offensive leverage, an approach designed to decrease China's dependence on high-tech imports while making the world's technology supply chains increasingly dependent on China. Yep. Ensure that China can easily substitute imports from one country with the same imports from another and use China's economic leverage to advance the CCP's political objectives around the globe. The CCP has tried to spin these moves as defensive. We must sustain and enhance our superiority across the entire production chain, and we must tighten international production chain's dependence on China, forming a powerful countermeasure and deterrent capability against foreigners who would artificially cut off supply to China, end quote, explained Xi, in a seminal speech last year. So they say it. Mm -hmm. In practice, however, China is playing offense. In recent years, Beijing has restricted trade and tourism with Canada, Japan, Mongolia, Norway, and the Philippines, South Korea, and other countries in an effort to force change changes in their laws and internal political and judicial processes. The most aggressive of these campaigns is the one the CCP launched against Australia. More than a year ago, Australia proposed that the World Health Organization investigate the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. The idea was supported by nearly all the members of the World Health Assembly, but Beijing decided to punish Canberra for its uh, temerity. China soon began restricting imports of Australian beef, barley, wine, coal, and lobster. Then the CCP released a list of 14 so-called disputes that are, in effect, political demands made of the Australian government, including that Canberra repeal laws designed to counter the CCP's covert influence operations in Australia, muzzled the Australians' press by suppressing criticism of Beijing, and make concessions to China's territorial claims in the South China Sea. China targeted Australia, 
with precisely the offensive economic strategy that Xi's speeches and party documents describe. When it comes to grand strategy, at least, Xi is a man of his word. I think that's short, short, but really powerful. And I think that's an important thing to point out. And I think that's why you need scholars like Matthew Pottinger. You and I can sort of postulate on what Chinese grand strategy is. But Matt Pottinger says, look at what she says in his speeches and documents that he releases to the internal party, and then look at how that plays out in the real world. You can draw a direct corollary. They're not executing some strategy we don't know. They're, the tactics and the, the methods that they're going to use will be in service of a strategy that they've stated publicly. And I think that it's good for scholars like Matt Pottinger to be out there saying, no, look, look what they're doing in Australia. They're doing this in Australia because it fits with what she said in this speech. Exactly. One to one. And so what are they going to do next? Well, we know they're going to continue to employ the strategy until he says something else or refines, you know, does a slight course correction on the strategy. We know they're going to act in con concordance with what they've said. They're fooling you with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. They're telling you what they're going to do, and then they do it. They tell you what they're going to do, then they're going to do it. Now, why would they be so open? Because they feel they can, and they do. And all of a sudden, they feel like, yes, I can do it, so I'm going to do it. When they have the power to do it, they will do it. And so when they began controlling our supply chains, he actually said it, when the supply chains, I agree with him. Well, we've seen it. When they start, as they, got, as they get more and more power, uh, economically, and also they control our resources, uh, you know what they're going to do. So they're not going to hold back on just telling us what to do. Yeah. You know, and I get it again, the supply chain, every, you can bring down, uh, no matter how powerful an army is, when they start attacking, if you cut off their supply chain, eventually they will die. Mm -hmm. you, may, you may not bait them, you may not beat them uh, front on because they're more powerful, but you cut off their supply chain and they will die. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the supply chain has has so much power uh, politically, economically, uh, even socially. And when you start controlling the country, uh, controls uh, uh, resources, you control the country. Yeah. And we watched the 60 minute. Oh, go ahead. That goes right into the political uh, uh theology or political uh, uh, theocracy of how to rule a country. Mm -hmm. Now, Go ahead. we watched a 60 Minutes Australia about the, one of the tycoons that has, he's uh, moved to the UK because he feared for his life when, because he was a big, uh, Wen Jai Bao, who was the former head of the CCP, when Hu Jintao was president, um, they built billions, uh, empire of billions, basically cargo shipping, I believe, he and his mm -hmm. wife. And they divorced. He moved to the UK when she came to power. His wife stayed there, and she got disappeared off the streets of Beijing three years ago. Um, he wrote a book about how if you're not totally in line or, you know, if you're, if you're not a child of the party, if you're not inculcated into the party, they weren't really tight with the party. They had strong party ties, but they weren't you know, generational party figures, their empire was just seen, I think, as something for she to transfer to 
someone that was more loyal when he came into power. And it was fine under the previous rulers because they were loyal to the previous rulers. So he saw it as, well, this billion-dollar fortune that you've amassed, it's time for me to arrest you and give this billion-dollar fortune to someone else to control. And the wife went missing for three years. And he, the guy wrote a book about it. And on the eve of the book's publication, the wife calls him and says, don't publish the book. Don't publish the book or someone's going to get hurt. Your, your kid, our son, is going to get hurt. You know, or someone else is going to get hurt. And that's very coercive, but it was fascinating. And then the interviewer said, you know, we've had a row because it was 60 Minutes Australia. Because we asked about an investigation into the origins, and they slapped all these tariffs on us. What do you think about that? And it's like, well, they're slapping these tariffs on you, Australia, because they can. And just wait until they can do it to the U.S. They won't do it to the U.S. yet because they don't have the economic power. But when they do, you better believe they will. And I thought that was they one of the more, the more fascinating parts of that interview. But that's true. To Americans, your ears will perk up and you better believe him. Mm-hmm. You better believe him because he's right. He's, he's right. But they will do that to any country and every country. Yeah. They'll do that to Europe. They'll do that to, to the UK. They'll do that to the EU. If they can, they will. Yeah. Because they, they've demonstrated that. They'll even, once they get power, they'll tell you what they're going to do. Then they'll do it. Yeah. Because you can't stop them. Anyway, it's now we're saying this, and so who knows? Well, who knows how how China would take what we're saying? We're saying what other people have said. Yeah, we're just, yeah, and we're saying once they have power, they'll exercise their power. That's true with anybody. That's true with anyone. That's true. Now the disappear- uh, the, the, United, the United States did it too. The disappearance of billionaires off the streets that wouldn't happen here. But there's no. things that would happen here that would not happen in China. That's right. You know, like and he did say money. He did say money means has no meaning over there. Uh, the the bloodline of the political party mm-hmm. does. Now, like Elon Musk tweeting and moving markets with his tweets. In China, they'd be like, "You have this wild card guy, doesn't respect the government. He's building businesses there." And he can tweet and move markets, and people will lose hundreds of millions of dollars in a day. Like, if this were China, and Elon Musk were a Chinese guy, if he tweeted and it was against something that we wanted, we'd just throw him in prison for three years, <laughs> you know? And he wouldn't be able to move markets like that with a single tweet anymore. Uh, That's right. And they'd say, isn't that superior? And... Of course, as Americans, we say no. But if you were a CCP member, you're like, yeah, of course it's superior. You got to have right. control over your if, system because they have a different system. If their if their goal is an end game, if the end justifies the means, yes. In America, the United States, uh, we don't always have that goal. We're we're moving when it's uh, when Ben Rhodes was saying us and them, we're moving away from the the uh, the, the the means of achieving something is just as important as the end. We're moving to where the end justifies the means, so therefore it's us versus them. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be careful uh, how we begin approaching uh, success. Yes. So, I mean, I'm liking this article so far. I think that I like when people take a, a firm stance, and he's taking a firm, Matt Pottinger's taking a firm stance against China in this article, and I think it's fascinating. Yeah, me too. So shall we continue? 
Yes, under the influence. Under the influence. I think this is going to be what we were talking about. The CCP's campaign okay. of offensive leverage represents the overt manifestation of Beijing's grand strategy. But the strategy also relies on covert and invisible activities. Information warfare and influence operations designed to subvert the social and political institution of China's rivals. The most important element of those efforts is, quote, united front work, an immense range of activities that China's leaders call a magic weapon and that has no analog in the world's advanced democracies. The party's 95 million members are required to participate in the system, which has many branches. And the United Front Work Department alone has three times as many cadres as the United States has foreign service officers. Instead of practicing diplomacy, however, the United Front gathers intelligence about and works to influence private citizens and government officials overseas, with a focus on foreign elites and the organizations they run. Assembling dossiers has always been a feature of Leninist regimes, but Beijing's penetration of digital networks worldwide has taken it to a new level. The party compiles dossiers on millions of foreign citizens around the world using the material it gathers to influence and intimidate, reward and blackmail, flatter and humiliate, divide and conquer. The political scientist Anne-Marie Brady calls United Front Work a tool to corrode and corrupt foreign political systems, to weaken and divide us against each other, to erode the critical voice of our media and turn our elites into clients of the Chinese. Chinese Communist Party, their mouths stuffed with cash. Newer to the party's arsenal is the exploitation of U.S. social media companies. Over the past several years, Beijing has flooded their platforms with overt and covert propaganda, amplified by proxies and bots that is increasingly focused not only on promoting whitewashed narratives of Beijing's policies, but also on exacerbating social tensions within the United States and other target nations. The Chinese government and its online proxies, for example, have for months promoted content that questions the effectiveness and safety of Western-made COVID-19 vaccines. Research by the Su Fan Center has also found indications that China-based influence operations are amplifying online conspiracy theories, including QAnon-related reported falsehoods. The Soviet Union could never have dreamed of reaching a mass audience in the United States for its agitprop, such as the one Beijing reaches daily through the tools provided by Silicon Valley technology giants. Currently, there is no effective path for the People's Republic of China to wage effective global information operations and increase its international discourse power that does not run through American social media platforms like Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, writes Bill Bishop, the author of the blog Sinocism and a close observer of Beijing's information warfare. They're using us against ourselves. Well, yeah, I mean... That's the thing about, I don't know, that, yeah, they're using a system that exists. And that's, that's how it works, right? I, mm -hmm. And people say, oh, you know, Facebook is bad. But Facebook is neither, I guess you could say it's neither good nor bad. Although anytime there's press about it, it's bad. <laughs> they never write a, a Facebook article, article about like a grandma during COVID who's, you know, son or daughter had a child and they're 500 miles away and they get to see their grandchild for the first time because it's facilitated by Facebook. They never write that story. It's always like misinformation, right. this and that. And, that. and that, it's true, but I think bad and good goes on on these platforms. It's just, mm -hmm. are they more of a tool for bad than good? Because they are clearly a tool for both, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it was intended for good, but it didn't turn out... It, Everything was not good. Yeah, but that's not 
again, that may not be the totally the Facebook's uh, fault. It's uh, uh, that's the people who use it for for bad. Yeah, it's like um, if you use a film camera to film a murder, is the film camera bad? Because what it captured was bad. I don't know, but. <laughs> we could get we could go down a rabbit hole talking about this. Let's talk about Chinese coercion. That's sort of mm-hmm. what this last section was about, right? It is, and it's very interesting. Again, how he points out things that I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know about you know, the, the United U- Front. Not, me neither. Now I'm sure that we have in our lives as Americans encountered uh, United Front initiatives. You know what I mean. And just not known that they were United Front initiatives. I'm sure that we've seen. I went and saw the Tom Hanks Mr. Rogers movie. Okay. And I was interested in the fact that one of the main producers, financiers of the movie was Tencent, which is a Chinese technological company. Um, now, just because a Chinese tech company financed a Tom Hanks movie where Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers doesn't mean that the themes in the movie are Chinese propaganda. But when I saw the 10 cent banner at the beginning of the movie, I thought, what am I going to be told? And it's a very wholesome movie about, you know, overcoming your anger and how Mr. Rogers was a good person. But in the back of my mind, is like, is there some sort of Chinese propagandistic message here that I'm missing? Because Tencent funded them. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the that that's very true. With like Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, it's used for for their purposes, but that doesn't mean that's the reason that they were made. It's just it's just a it it was used for. It's the people who use them yeah. that, that makes that makes it evil. Now, I think in this, I just want to toot our own horn a little bit before we go on. So the Chinese have this massive united front. We don't know anything about it, but I'm sure they're doing a lot of work around the world. I'm sure that we've encountered united front propaganda at some point on social media or somewhere on YouTube. Who knows? But I want to make this point before I go on. Um, wait, what were you saying before? <laughs> just uh, the... Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook are not evil in their own in themselves. That's how people use them. Okay, yeah, and I mean Chinese media. Um, you sort of wonder: Are they explicit? Like like a ten cent funded film? Are they explicitly promoting Chinese ideals? And then you know that Warner Brothers, like if they want their film to do well in China, they won't have a Chinese bad guy. So there's self censorship on the U.S. side, and then there's you know active promotion of. Chinese principles uh, for media production. Um, But moving forward, it's like, how do you deal with this? Oh, I know what I was going to say. Toot our own horn. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got off track. Um, On Twitter, on Facebook, what you see is a lot of outrage. And Twitter, you're allowed 280 characters. So how many words can you make with that? 50? You know, 54-letter words? So in 50 words, you can outrage someone. And you can get them, you can spur them to action. Now, I think what we do on this podcast, we take a look at a a publication like Foreign Affairs. We have National Security um, Council advisors. We have academics from America and from China. And we've read articles from Chinese academics. We've read articles from America academics. 
they don't communicate in 280 character barbs. And they are not angry. They communicate in full paragraphs. They communicate in multiple pages. They're laying out these ideas and they're saying, this is the state of play. This is the way it is. What do we do about it? The fascinating thing about social media is there's very little of that. Dispassionate analysis and dispassionate um, presentation of possible remedies to a wrong. That's what you see in scholarship that you don't see on social media. Twitter soundbites is easier to enrage than it is inform. So soundbites, it's easy to enrage people and to create anger and create division. That's much easier to do, to tear down, than it is, than it is to inform and build up and uh, and and promote some uh, interconnected ideas, and that's what the that's what foreign foreign affairs does. Mm-hmm. And that's why having and that's what we that's what we try to do here. That's well, what we, you're getting at. And also, yeah, also we're not foreign policy experts, but we like foreign affairs just because it's a a well curated magazine, and we don't just talk about the article. We read the article. Because it's like, it's not just our take on what they said. It's what they said and our take on what they said. Our immediate reaction. Yeah. And so we're not experts in this area at all, but we're trying to understand what they're saying and (laughs) recognizing they are the experts. Yes. And I think you should listen and try to understand what people are saying. And don't, and try to understand what, what the people are saying that look at, look at the source that they know what they're talking about. They they have a lot of experience, especially uh, uh, the, the, uh, within the foreign affairs, uh, the, art, the authors within the foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. So shall we get back to the article? An American counter strategy. Wow, that, this, is, this is a very good article. Uh, it's very strategic. Okay. Uh, oh, is it my turn? I think it's your turn. An American, okay, American counter strategy. After decades of naivete and denialism, uh, Washington's approach to Beijing finally began to adapt to reality and toughen up during the Trump administration. And the Biden administration has largely maintained its predecessor's policy. The tariffs Trump imposed to punish China's theft of intellectual property are still in place. And President Joe Biden is fleshing out a Trump-initiated Commerce Department panel meant to keep dangerous Chinese software and equipment out of U.S. domestic telecommunications networks. The current administration is also deepening diplomatic initiatives related to China, such as the Quad, a group of democracies composed of Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. Despite those those corrective steps, there are still several areas in which Washington needs to further strengthen its approach, especially by, by making sure that powerful private interests in the United States stop undercutting the country's ability to confront China. The realm of finance is the place to start. The retirement savings of millions of Americans currently finance Beijing's military modernization and support Chinese companies that are complicit in genocide and other crimes against humanity. Even as Beijing was systematically expelling foreign journalists from China and making the country's investment climate increasingly opaque, stock index providers such as FTSC, Russell, and MSCI continued to add Chinese companies to their indexes. 
sometimes under pressure from Beijing. Because many Americans, American funds benchmark their investments to those same indexes, billions of U.S. dollars automatically flow to Chinese companies, including those that Washington has sanctioned or subject to export controls. For Beijing, there simply is no substitute for U.S. capital markets, whose depth and liquidity outpace those of the rest of the world's capital markets. Few successful Chinese technology companies exist that were not launched with money and expertise from Silicon Valley, Valley venture capital firms. Both Alibaba and Baidu were seeded with U.S. capital. Although executive orders issued by the Trump and Biden administrations already prohibit U.S. investments in 59 named Chinese companies involved in the Chinese military modernization or human rights atrocities, the Treasury Department needs to expand that list by at least an order of magnitude to better encompass the galaxy of Chinese companies developing so-called dual-use technologies, those both civilian and military or surveillance applications. The Biden administration the Biden administration should also enforce a ban on the purchase of debt instruments from blacklisted companies and clarify that their subsidiaries are off limits to U.S. investors as well. The European Union should adopt a similar investment blacklist and permanently abandon the trade agreement it recently negotiated with Beijing. The deal is already on ice after Beijing sanctioned European parliamentarians and think tanks for highlighting Chinese human rights abuses. The EU should now withdraw once and for all. The United States and European countries should also challenge the naked hypocrisy of some firms that tout investment products they claim will further environmental, social, and governance goals. Some money managers who offer such options eschew investment in Western companies that don't meet a particular set of criteria called ESG criteria, but happily invest in Chinese companies that feature atrocities records, atrocious records in all three categories. There are U.S. university endowments, for instance, that could deliberately decide to invest in only ESG compliant companies in the United States, but simultaneously invest in a raft of Chinese firms that flout all accepted standards of corporate governance and environmental stewardship. Chinese firms contribute more to greenhouse gas emissions, ocean plastic pollution, and illegal fishing than do companies of any other country on earth. As for social responsibility, a wide variety of Chinese companies, from leading technology firms to manufacturers that, globally, that export globally, work with Beijing security apparatus to track, incarcerate, and extract forced labor from ethnic Uyghur and Kazakh Muslims. With respect to corporate governance, CCP cells operating mostly in secret wield significant and often decisive control over Chinese companies, making a mockery of Western standards of, of corporate transparency and independence. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission needs to fulfill its legal obligations under the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act of 2020 which prescribes an overly generous three-year grace period before Chinese companies are to be delisted de de from U.S. exchanges if they fail to meet U.S. accounting standards. The SEC has yet to start the clock 
on the three-year countdown for non-compliant firms. Having judged the U.S. law hollow, Chinese companies continued to launch initial public offerings in the United States. Washington need, also needs to do more to stymie Beijing's plans to dominate semiconductor manufacturing. Chinese leaders are well aware that most 21st century technologies, including 5G telecommunications, synthetic biology, and machine learning, are built around advanced semiconductors. Accordingly, those leaders have poured more than $100 billion in subsidies into building Chinese chip foundries with mixed results. Most of the world's cutting-edge chips are produced by the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. The CCP has many ideological and strategic reasons to consider invading Taiwan. Its quest for control of the market for chips represents an economic incentive to do so. Of course, a war could seriously damage Taiwan's foundries, which, in any case, would struggle to maintain production without Western chip designs and equipment. And such a shock to chip supplies would affect millions of downstream jobs in China, not just those in other large economies. Even so, Beijing might believe that China could recover from a crisis more quickly than the United States. That is precisely the lesson Beijing drew from the COVID-19 pandemic, which has taken a far greater toll on Chinese adversaries than on China itself. To be sure, Beijing would not take the fatal step of attacking Taiwan and risking war with the United States based on semiconductor inventories alone. The point is that Chinese leaders may not view the disruption of semiconductor supply chains as an inhibitor to launching a war. Regardless of Beijing's calculus, Washington should seek to eliminate any potential Chinese advantage in semiconductors by, by subsidizing new chip founders in the United States something the 2020 CHIPS Act and the 2021 U.S. Innovation and Comp Competition Act seek to do. The U.S. Commerce Department must also slow Beijing's efforts to scale up its foundries by applying sharper restrictions on the export of U.S.-made equipment used to manufacture semiconductors, not just for cutting-edge chips, but also for those that are a couple of generations older. Finally, Washington needs to do more to address Beijing's information warfare. One of the weirder ironies of our time is the fact that U.S. citizens are sometimes censored and even deplatformed for political speech by the same American social media giants that channel CCP disinformation and agitprop to millions of people worldwide. U.S. companies, Congress, and the courts should act to address both of these phenomena. Supporting the free speech of U.S. citizens while exposing the ways in which Beijing boosts its messaging. This can and should be done while still upholding the letter and spirit of the First Amendment. The idea is not to censor Beijing's statements, but to expose government-orchestrated efforts to camouflage propaganda as organic discourse among private citizens through fake accounts and covert schemes. Washington's base partners in this effort should be the Silicon Valley social media giants themselves. Because they have means to detect Beijing's proxies, these firms can take a leading role in tamping down the sheer amplitude of Chinese government influence operations online. At the same time, free and open societies 
and the companies that flourish in them must make it easier for Chinese citizens to assess, to access information from outside China's Great Firewall, and to communicate with one another away from the watchful eye of Beijing's digital panopticon. The Great Firewall is formidable but less technologically advanced than many observers often assume. In contrast to the CCP's information warfare, U.S. efforts need not involve manufacturing disinformation or even generating much content at all. Washington needs only to provide the Chinese people with safer means to exchange news, opinions, history, films, and satire with their fellow citizens and others around the world. One good place to start would be the Chinese diaspora. Diaspora. There are very few Chinese language news outlets left that resist towing the CCP's line. Under a new national security law imposed by Beijing, authorities in Hong Kong recently arrested the owner and editors of one of the few that remained, the now defunct Apple Daily. The U.S. government can help by offering grants to promising private outlets and re-energizing re federally funded media such as Radio Free Asia. U.S. universities should also hand a second smartphone to every Chinese national who comes to study in the United States, one free from Chinese apps such as WeChat, which monitors users' activities and censors their news feeds. Wow. That was a long section. Long section, but he sure... He sure He's unloading. Yeah, well, he's got he's, he's got, got some uh, solutions, right? Or he does, and he has a he has a lot of information, a lot of direction, a lot of focused uh, solutions uh, on on everything we're doing. Uh, and even though it's it's relative, this is this is a long section for the article, but it's relatively short. He just bam 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 bam. Yeah. Here's the things that really should be done. And it's not only just the United States, but also Europe and EU. Yeah, so he's saying financially, Chinese companies are allowed to list on index funds. So FTSE, Russell, MSCI. So what we'll do is, um, in America, we'll bundle exchange-traded funds. So if a Chinese company is on that, you know, you buy an ETF, but then, you know, market makers will buy that stock, you know, in proportion to the percent of the exchange. So, you know, if the FTSE goes up, your, your financial instrument goes up. But a Chinese stock is part of the FTSE. So you're actually directly giving money to the Chinese stock. And so he's saying with that, we're basically financing a lot of Chinese expansion. Mm -hmm. you, may, you may not even know you're buying a Chinese stock because you're buying an index fund. And the Chinese stock is within that index fund. So, wow, okay. That's, that's clearer. And so we are really financing. The United States is financing the the the, the Chinese uh, subver subversive uh, uh, initiatives. Yes. So I guess what he's saying is we need more transparency. We need to make sure that fewer dollars spread there. And then he's saying. So I guess the way that I always explain this: like, let's say there's an index fund of ten companies, and one of them is Chinese, and it's the Dave's Index. And you say, oh, I want to buy $100 worth of Dave's Index. And all those 10 companies are the same size. Well, 10 of those $100 will be used to buy stock in the one Chinese company. Because you're, you know, well, 
that ten dollars flows to that Chinese company, and you're like, well, I didn't buy a Chinese company. I buy I bought Dave's index fund. You know, so you don't even know what comprises an index, but American dollars are going into Chinese pockets. That's what he's saying. There needs to be more transparency about this, especially when those companies are bad actors or they're producing surveillance or military technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that we're not giving China the funding they need to produce more sophisticated military and surveillance technology. Second, he says um, the EU should tamp down on this as well. Um, right. And the EU is already sort of balking on a trade deal with China because of the Chinese human rights abuses, um, which I think is interesting. Uh, now, it's like um, there's also ESG criteria, I think, environmental, social, and governmental. Mm-hmm. And all the U.S. stocks, they have to be, you know, virtuous. But then they'll also buy Chinese stocks and they don't have to meet those ESG criteria. So he's saying, you know, large institutional investors should either not buy Chinese stocks or apply the same level of scrutiny to the environmental, social and governmental um, scruples of the Chinese stocks they buy. That would be like, you know, if I get organic kale and um, organic broccoli and I steam it, and then I serve it alongside Chicken McNuggets. You know? Uh, it's like, oh, this is healthy because I'm eating organic kale with organic broccoli. But also, I got, you know, a 20-piece McDonald's Chicken McNuggets. It's like, you're not really being that healthy at that point. It's more virtue signaling than anything. Um, and then he sort of, you know, goes to take a stab at their concentration camps. Um, uh-huh. Which I think is a any country that has concentration camps, you sort of got to shrug your shoulders and be like, you know, I'm against concentration camps. You know, mm-hmm. I know China doesn't like it when people say that they're against concentration camps, but that's where the world is going to fall on that issue, as whether they like it or not. Um, let's see, what else does he say? <laughs> he says a lot in this section. Okay, so they want to dominate semiconductor manufacturing. This is what I was talking about earlier. TSMC makes a lot of the, but like as we saw, a lot of the designs are Korean, Japanese, and American, and European. Very few of the designs are Chinese. Now, mm-hmm. if they do invade Taiwan and take over all these semiconductor manufacturers, there would be a huge supply chain disruption, but they may actually have access to current generation American designs, and equipment. And so what he's saying is they may be willing to take that risk. We need to plan and be able to onshore semiconductor manufacturing with our designs and make sure that it's not wholly dependent on Taiwan because it may be a military option, not just because of the cultural or historical heritage, but because of the economic incentive of gaining control of semiconductor manufacturing that exists there. For China, because the power of technology and manufacturing within a a, a mechanized uh, organization, uh, a country, uh, the strength of that is their supply chain. Mm-hmm. And if you onshore it, then all of a sudden, even though they have that technology and they may get it here eventually, uh, when they need it, they will get it, and when they have it, uh, 
then if we if we are tied to the supply chain, then they have control of the supply chain. Yeah. But if we have if we on short or have alternatives, we have to be we have to be uh, robust in our in our supply chain strategy. As a matter of fact, I think I think Biden has moved in that direction, looking at uh, more the, the national security issues of our supply chains, because that that becomes even more more important these days than it ever has been in the past, mm-hmm. uh, because because the the uh, global players are becoming much more aggressive, such as China and uh, and even the Middle East, but China especially because we're talking about China now. Yeah, I mean, especially with semiconductor manufacturing, I don't think Iran's going to make a play into the semiconductor manufacturing industry. No, but they still have supply chain of, of vital resources of that vital the world resources. needs. Yes, exactly. So um, there's other resources over there. With the same, there's the same argument right here. We, ev- the world needs to have be much more robust, 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 and the only way you can do that is disengage yourself from from economic objectives. Things cannot be just economic, economically driven. Now, so cost cannot be the only only factor. Now he also has, you know, give students a non-Chinese smartphone. That's an interesting. That's very interesting. It's yes. a fascinating uh, suggestion. And I'm thinking of, you know, he's saying the COVID nineteen pandemic taught China that their adversaries took a far greater toll. Than on China itself, and then his next that, thing is, finally, Washington needs to do Beijing's information warfare. The thing is, you have to take China at its word that the COVID nineteen pandemic affected it less than it affected us. One of the things about why everyone knew America did poorly with the COVID nineteen pandemic is because open and accurate reporting is allowed here. Now, it's not allowed in China. We don't really know the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic took on China. And um, it may be much worse than, oh, it's, I would all but guarantee you that it's much worse than they said it was. I think that's a fair assessment. I think it is. And when Australia says, I think we should look into how this happened and China in retaliation puts tariffs on all their goods, it seems like they really don't want to know what happened. They don't want the world to know what happened there. And so the question is, did they really weather the storm better? Um, the fact that they don't want anyone to know what happens, maybe it suggests that they didn't. They don't want to know how badly they were hurt by it. Do you see what I'm maybe. saying? Yeah, that may be. And uh, whether, whether it was hurt worse or not, I think they want the world to think that they control, they protect their people better than the United States does. Yes. That, that, that's all, that's the message. Whether they did or not, it doesn't matter to them. Uh, but they want the world to think that. I think it's important, it, though, that that's what they want the world to think. And I think it's important to take that with a grain of salt, is what I'm saying. Oh, you're right. I see that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, fantastic section. A lot of, a lot of information and a lot of proposed solutions, don't you think? Yes, and it's it's, it's uh, very 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 the, the thing about the students uh, focusing on uh, U.S. universities should also hand a smart second smartphone to every Chinese national a second smartphone 
to every Chinese national who comes to study the United States, one free from the Chinese apps such as WeChat. And uh, but again, they're focusing on the people. He, he even mentioned the people, allowing the, peop the Chinese people safer means to exchange news, opinions, history, films, and satire with the fellow citizens and others around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, there again, the power, uh, the Chinese are looking at the, the economic power and also the supply power, supply chain power, but also the power of the people. Mm -hmm. If your people are against you and everyone's against you, then you're going to have you're going to have trouble uh, promoting any kind of any kind of uh, uh, agendas. Yeah. So th I think this is the conclusion section and we're going long a little bit today, but that's OK, right? <clears throat> it's OK. And uh, so shall I read the conclusion section and we'll wrap it up relatively quickly? Yes. Okay, democracy versus tyranny. During a visit to Beijing in 1995, the U.S. democracy activist Diamond Liu met with former Chinese officials sympathetic to democratic reform. He provided Liu with an insight into U.S.-Chinese relations that she never forgot. If the contest is based on interests, tyranny wins. If the contest is based on values, democracy wins. The failure of Beijing's recent attempt to coerce Australia into compliance with Chinese policy illustrates this point nicely. CCP leaders gambled that Australian businesses suffering from a targeted trade embargo would lobby their government to make political concessions to Beijing. But the Australian people, business leaders and exporters included, understood that accepting China's ultimatum would mean submitting to a dangerous new order. Australian businesses absorbed the losses, weathered the embargo, and found new markets. Australians decided that their sovereignty was more important than lobster sales, no doubt confounding those in Beijing who had assumed that Canberra would put Australia's economic interests ahead of its foundational values. The CCP, having played this card, will not be able to do so again with much effect in Australia or elsewhere, so long as democracies remain alert to what is at stake. The CCP has made perfectly clear its desire for global preeminence, and officials in Washington have finally stopped pretending otherwise. Americans, Europeans, and people the world over are now increasingly clear-eyed about Beijing's intentions and the sources of its hostile behavior. Elected leaders must now take the next step, applying their tough new line not just to Beijing, but also to elite institutions in their own societies that need to join the fight against the CCP, because companies are economic actors, not political ones. It is the government's responsibility to establish guidelines for engaging with adversaries. With strict new parameters, Washington can level the playing field for all U.S. firms, refreshing their commitment to the United States' 245-year-old experiment with democracy instead of bowing to the Chinese government's experiment with neo-totalitarianism. Without such guidelines, however, U.S. firms, money, and institutions will continue to be coerced into serving Beijing's ends instead of democratic principles. Good ending. Yep. Good conclusion. Very good article. Well written. Uh, wow. I, I'm so thankful. I'm really thankful that we have these kinds of scholars and also outlets that do exactly what this article is saying. Let's listen to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of things that he said, I think, was 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 extremely good, and I think uh, he makes some extremely good points to wrap up. And this is a short section <clears throat> compared to the longer section before, but here he's he's bringing conclusions, yeah. and I think he said a couple of things that were excellent. 
Now, I also think this is a fascinating thing. He's a national security advisor guy. I mean, he's at the Marathon Initiative now, but he was on the National Security Council as an advisor. There was no military proposals in counteracting right. the strategy. Now, there's right. a lot going on in the South China Sea. There's a lot going on with Taiwan. There's a lot going on militarily. Uh, China's continued support of North Korea. None of that was brought up. He basically framed China's, it was the, what did he call it, political warfare, Kennan's political warfare. He framed the whole conflict as political warfare. Now, the only time he mentioned per, potential military conflict was China's ambitions vis-a-vis Taiwan. But he, he, he didn't advocate for any aggressive military posturing by the U.S. military. It was more about not bending when China tries to flex its economic muscle against, you know, uh, the United States or the United States allies. And changing our system that allows financing to flow to China for companies that may be working towards nefarious purpose that enhance the Chinese state's neo-totalitarian capabilities and relying on American ideals and principles like freedom of speech to sort of win the day. You know, I think that a lot of ideals in China are shaped by a lack of information. Now, I think that a lot of the problems of denying people information can be seen in China. Now, I think that a lot of the problem of giving people unfettered access to, informa- to information can be seen in America. <laughs> so it's uh, two sides of a coin. And I, I mean, I'll always come down on our side, but there's strong arguments to be made for, you know, hey, in China, we're not pooping our guts out because we're eating horse paste. That's what you do in America because you don't control your information. I mean, they could make arguments against us, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're totally right. And if we believe in our foundational values, like he said, he said, China couldn't realize, they didn't realize that Australia would choose its foundational values over dollars and cents. And I guess that's that's how he's framing how we go forward. There may be some pain. There may be, uh, you know, economic tension, economic anxiety by not doing business with China. We'll have to find alternative markets. But if that's the cost of not kowtowing to whatever they say, it's like we have to put our values above economics. And I think it's a, it's a fascinating article. Well, I think there, it is. And I think the reason, one reason uh, would uh, why he didn't really propose any, any military uh, responses is uh, because uh, a military response really fuels the fires uh, because they're not they're gonna they're not gonna win, okay? That's not the war. The war is not a military aggression. It's an economic aggression. It's a political aggression. It is it is an information aggression. So that's not where the war is. Uh, and we've had artic- other articles here about terrorism. Well, that again is information. It's co- it's connections, okay? And I think that a couple of things he said. So therefore, if you're gonna, uh, if it is a war, then you're gonna attack the war on where you're gonna solve the war, and it's not militarily. It's gonna be economically and also politically and working with the people, and also looking at information. So the uh, 
a couple of things a couple of things he said i think was was great uh, to to for me to close up what i want to say uh first of all he said he said he's talking about uh, uh applying tough new lines and and with companies is because companies are economic actors not political ones it is the government's responsibility to establish guidelines for engaging with adversaries because if they don't have the guidelines then their economic behavior will fuel political means for your adversaries mm -hmm. they'll just maximize profit they don't, they they'll don't. Max, well they'll maximize their political advantage because it's not about economics it's it it's about economics only to companies mm -hmm. to our adversaries the economics is a means to an end of political power and dominance mm -hmm. and totalitarianism and so that's why our government uh, allows companies the freedom but also should have guidelines to protect the future of our companies with uh, away from aggression from other from other uh, uh, adversaries I think that that was very enlightened and very very good very good uh, I like that a lot because that's really true and that simple statement just just opens up a lot of insight on how we need to move forward economically uh, with our government politically uh, but also with our information uh, with our education with everything the other the second thing that I really liked was a very beginning uh, where we talked about Diamond Liu uh, met uh, US democracy activists mm -hmm. and what he saw the insight that he saw uh, with US Chinese relations that she never forgot was quote if the contest is based on interests tyranny wins if the contest is based on values democracy wins so that's a good point to step back and think about interests versus values and i think that's why he went right into the australian china conflict mm -hmm. because one was on interests so chinese sees interests uh, and, and uh, uh, the uh, australian government saw values and uh, all of a sudden the value wins because that's how they acted uh, on the other hand the United States the the, the uh, companies uh, are economic actors and so economics are their interests yeah okay and so they need to have political guidelines on values and uh, uh, so there we have to be very we have to be careful as we move forward yeah and there so are... I think this is this is a call to action for our government and our country and and also not only our government the 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 uh, partnership with the government with the the medias with, with the media with the uh, uh youtube and uh, uh twitter and uh facebook uh there has to be a partnership here and a coming together not an adversarial relationship mm -hmm. and i mean if you but the thing is these companies are powerful twitter facebook um mm -hmm. and if the government says we want you to engage in a behavior that's going to hurt you economically these companies will see it as an attack and they'll fight back you know i know that it's like oh we should all work together can you just make 150 billion dollars less per year 
because our country is telling you so. And they say, well, you're not the only country we service, <laughs> you know? Um, no, I, I think. No, but I do you see what, what I'm saying? saying? Yes, I do. And yeah. I, my, my argument is, is that the government's responsibility is to establish the way you establish that is coming together and coming together with an alliance, with an agreement, with a partnership and saying, look, here's what here's what we need to do moving forward as a government, as a powerful player within our economy. We need to move forward collectively. Mm-hmm. And when I when it says establish guidelines, it's not force them on 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 YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, but partner with them such that we move forward to sustain your your uh, your your viability and, and sustainability. So, I think that's he's saying the res- government's responsibility is engage to have guidelines moving forward, and it's not dic- it's not dictating guidelines. It's it's agreeing with coming together with a partnership. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that earlier, which I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think that the road forward is going to be difficult because people will always be enticed by incentives more than values, especially corporations. And I think that's an important point to make. So how do we get corporations to embrace values over incentives? That's the trillion dollar question. The people. Yeah, the people. The people. Perhaps. The people. And that we do have that 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 foundation of we the people. And uh that's the power, I think, of a lot of our country is the people. And they have to be come together and in, in, in a unified uh, that's why these kinds of articles are so important. To say, yeah, this, this is this is the state of affairs, and so the people have to understand this, and so everyone has to come to uh, not conspiracy issues, but actual scholars, and that's why the Foreign Affairs and other magazines and and outlets and and writings of scholars is so important. Yep, and I think we could probably leave it at that for this episode, don't you think? Okay. So this has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Uh, We're live every Tuesday and Thursday. And welcome to October, everyone. I'm going to play some outro music as we leave. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. That's uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, all the companies we've just been talking about, Um, in addition (laughs) to YouTube. So you can find us there. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please join us every Tuesday and Thursday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time. Is there anything you'd like to say as we close? Yes, the Sons of Sequoia says, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what other people are saying. <laughs>